Just two months ago, our city was shocked uh, when news reports broke out around a doctor named Kermit Gosnell. So if you were in the city, you likely heard the story about the abortion doctor in West Philadelphia and the clinic that he was running. And as reporters began to break the story, it just became harder to hear as the details began to come out about what was happening just in our own city, just blocks from where some of you live. Dr. Gosnell, if you remember the story, and a team of untrained medical assistants were performing illegal late-term abortions. Those are abortions which in our state are past 24 weeks, well into the third trimester, and committing horrific murder, injuring several women and murdering several children. As the details surrounding this case began to be made known, it just became harder to stomach, harder to hear, harder to watch, as everybody shared in the horror of what was happening. Philadelphia District Attorney Seth Williams issued a statement saying that Dr. Gosnell induced labor, forced the live birth of viable babies in the sixth, seventh, eighth month of pregnancy, and then killed those babies by cutting into the back of the neck with scissors and severing their spinal cord. The grand jury report indicates that babies were killed at 26, 28, and 32 weeks, that one had been breathing on a table for 20 minutes before its spinal cord was cut. One employee admitted that they had severed the spinal cords of 100 babies each of them born after 24 weeks. An investigation into his clinic, investigators found jars and bags in refrigerators filled with the remains of aborted fetuses. And regardless of where you stood in the city on the issue, everybody shared this sense of horror at what was happening. No matter what side of the aisle you stood on, everybody had a sense that what they had just witnessed and heard was horrific. News reports, Fox News and, and the Daily News and others reported him as a monster who made millions and millions of dollars preying on poor minority women and murdering babies. They called his clinic a slaughterhouse. One writer for Vanity Fair and the Philadelphia Daily News wrote that he was himself personally against capital punishment, but that he would pay to watch Dr. Gosnell executed. And there was this great rally, even within the city, urging that Seth Williams, the district attorney, go for the death penalty in this case. And all of this, I say this to say, happened right in our backyard in our city, national headline news, and literally his clinic is perhaps blocks away from where some of us live. Today, our text, because our city is well aware of the issue, and our text pushes us to consider abortion through the lens of the scriptures today. I want you to consider for a moment the staggering numbers connected with abortion. And to get a sense of that, I'll compare it with some other well-known uh, events in history. We have called the Holocaust in World War II a genocide, and rightly so, because it claimed the lives of six million Jews. The Rwandan genocide of the 90s claimed the lives of one million men, women, and children. 
the Darfur conflict that many of us have heard about in our recent history has killed and slaughtered 400,000 people. And yet as ghastly and horrific as every one of those are, they pale in comparison to the numbers of fetuses that have been aborted. 3,900 children are killed every day through abortion. That works out to one every 22 seconds. 1.4 million babies will be killed in the womb. And some of us would say, look, we're in a church. We would all stand on the same side of abortion. I want you to hear, out of that 1.4 million, 250,000 are performed by professing evangelical Christians. So people that look just like us and say what we would say and claim faith in Jesus, 250,000 of such will perform abortions this year alone. Since the passing of Roe Roe v. Wade in 1973, we have 50 million abortions in this country alone. That tally is higher than the largest 18 cities in America combined. So if you took cities like New York and Philadelphia and Dallas and Phoenix and all the rest, we have aborted more babies just in the last three decades. All right, so let me say this off the bat. We are not preaching today a political message. This has nothing to do with politics, about what party that we're clinging to. This has nothing to do about who's in office or who's not in office. It has nothing to do with any of it. What it does have to do is with the scriptures. And I want you to hear this too. Some of us would not want to approach this topic. We don't want to talk through it. We don't want to address it. One of the things that preaching through a book of the Bible does is it forces you to deal with what you might otherwise skip and avoid. So our text is going to push us to consider this scene. And as it does, we want to faithfully consider it together. So I want to be clear today that we are preaching biblically on abortion. I want you to hear that so that you don't think that I sneakily or surreptitiously sort of snuck it in and somehow brought it into the conversation. I want you to hear from the outset, we're trying to think through biblically what a Christian response to abortion is. And hopefully as we do that, we'll do it like Jesus, both full of grace and full of truth. That's the stunning thing about Jesus. He was both full of grace and full of truth, and he married the two perfectly. And hopefully we'll try and do that together. So we need to pray. You can pray for me, even as I pray out loud. You can pray for yourselves as you hear, but let's pray and approach the Lord together for his grace as we consider this today. Let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks for another opportunity to gather. We thank you that your word calls us to weighty things. We thank you that you pull us out of sometimes silly and trivial lives and force us to consider things of greater worth and greater weight. As we do that today, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us, that your Spirit would be in our hour in both the preaching and the hearing. I yield my tongue to you to say what you would want us to say. And we would pray that you would yield our, we would yield our hearts and ears to you, that we would hear your word and we would even feel what you want us to feel. That we would really get a glimpse into the heart of God 
and not just know in our heads, but feel in our hearts and move into our lives towards what you might want us to move towards. So that's what we'd pray. We'd pray for good hearing, good feeling, even of this text. And we pray that you would allow us to obey in whatever manner you would want us to obey. Do more than I knew to ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you were here last week, you know that we began a series into the book of Exodus. So last week, we kicked off Exodus chapter 1. We called it the gospel according to Exodus because we're convinced that this whole book is about Jesus. That as you walk through the 40 chapters of Exodus, you're going to be returning to the person and work of Jesus over and over and over again. Last week, if you were here, you know that we said that Exodus picks up on the story that precedes it. So it picks up the story that Genesis started to tell, and it starts where Genesis ends. If you were here last week, you know that we said the first word of the book of Exodus is the word and, and it's and because it's continuing the story of Genesis. And so in Genesis was the story of a man named Abraham that we were introduced to in Genesis 12. He's got a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. One of them is Joseph. Through a series of events, this boy, Joseph, ends up in Egypt, ends up saving the entire nation, and rises to second in command under Pharaoh. So, I mean, just this high seat. And Pharaoh is so overwhelmed with gratitude for Joseph that at his own expense, he moves Joseph's whole family down to Egypt. So last week we saw in the first five verses that 70 people of Joseph's family moved down to Egypt. They were loved, they were favored, they were well thought of, they were given the best land. And over time, as the decades passed, as the centuries passed, as generations passed, this 70 grew and grew and grew to over a million people. Then Exodus tells us in about verse uh, 8 or so, that a new king comes to power, a king who doesn't know Joseph or doesn't recognize the national debt owed to Joseph. And he doesn't see Joseph in the light that the former Pharaoh did or his people that way. He sees the Hebrews as a growing problem. And we said that was literally the case, that what he was opposed to was the growing of the Hebrews. If you were here last week, we said that slavery wasn't the original issue. Slavery was simply Pharaoh's response, his solution to the original issue. The original issue was the growing of the Hebrews. He, he saw that this immigrant people had come into his land and that they had grown and been fruitful and multiplied and filled the land and it filled him with terror about what they might do. So if you remember in verse 9, he says, look, we've got to do something because they've become too many and too mighty for us. And so one of the things that he decides to do is he decides to implement slavery as a means of stopping the multiplication of the Hebrews. R remember that. They are being fruitful and multiplying and filling the land, and Pharaoh is directly opposed to all three. And we said last week that as he's opposed to that command, he he's actually opposed to God. Because their being fruitful and their multiplying and their filling the earth was God's idea and God's command in Genesis 1-7. And so what he was actually doing is not just butting up against Israel, he's actually opposing God. Right? So I'll give you an example. If your brother came into your room when you were a kid and said, listen, dad says, turn the TV off, start your homework, 
and you go, Psh, forget that, right? In a few minutes, you were going to hear some footsteps to your door, and dad was going to come and thump you, right? And he was going to do that. Why? Not because you defied your brother. You defied him, right? He was, he, by coming to your room and saying, dad said this, he was just carrying out an order. And it's not that you defied him. It, it's that you defied your dad by defying him, right? So, so that's what's happening in Exodus 1. Pharaoh is not ultimately against Israel or Moses, He's against the God who told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so right from Genesis 1, you're given this vision into the book that this is going to be this epic conflict between the enemy of God and between God himself. And so what the Pharaoh does is he comes up with slavery as one solution to the population problem. His thinking is if we can oppress them, if we can make them our slaves, then we'll wipe them out. And if you were here last week, you saw verse 12, which told us the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread abroad the land. What Pharaoh does all throughout chapters 1, 2, and even further, everything he tries unwittingly works against him and accomplishes the very opposite of what he set out to accomplish. Everything is working just as God wants it to work. And so when slavery doesn't work... Pharaoh comes up with a second plan, okay? So that's our text today. It's the passage that Benu read for us. In verse 15 and following, when slavery doesn't do the job, Pharaoh comes up with another plan, and his plan now will be murder. I want you to hear this. This has been the tactic of God's enemy, the serpent, from the very beginning. Slavery that leads to death. All right, that, that's, that's Satan's tactics, his his. Slogans have changed throughout the centuries, but his tactic from the beginning to crush God's people and oppose God is slavery, which leads to death. That's the work he's trying to do in the human soul. So Jesus will say, anyone who sins, John 8, is a slave to sin. Paul will say in Romans 6, and the wages of that sin is death. Right? So that's his MO. Get them enslaved to sin, and that slavery will lead to death. And as he tries that in the human soul, he tries that in the world at large as well. So look at verse 15 and 16. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see one of them on the birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. So here's his plan. He's going to crush these people through slavery. That doesn't work. And so now he orders the killing of Hebrew babies. He goes after the males because his thinking is these are the ones who are going to grow up and become soldiers who might pose a threat to him. So if he can get rid of the males, he can get the rest of the women either intermarried or take them as slave wives. And, and if he can't get them out, he'll breed them out. And somewhere or another, he'll take them. And so he goes after these males, and the idea is, he tells these two midwives, listen, when you're at the birthstone or the stool and you're standing there, you are to check for its gender. If it's a daughter, let it live. If it's a son, you kill that baby and make it look like an accident. And, and that's going to be part of their response back to him. So the idea is, if it's a son, kill him. If it's a daughter, let him live. 
You're going to find as we go through this passage, even that attempt won't work. Everything Pharaoh tries, none of it works. In fact, later we'll get there when we get to Exodus 12. We find out there's 600,000 males in Moses' generation. So that means nothing he tries worked. And yet, when it doesn't work, he, he turns up the heat. So verse 22, if you have your Bibles. It says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So he commands these midwives to commit this murder. As you'll see in the story, they don't do it. And when it doesn't happen, he then issues a national order. He sets a law throughout the whole country that they are to slaughter the babies of their Hebrew neighbors. Now you think of that for a second. This entire nation is called to comply with this law that he is to put to death the children of the Hebrews. Now, I don't know about you, but one of the things that that does for me is it, it makes me sort of start wondering, how does something like that happen? Like, how does an entire nation get duped into and buy into something so horrific like that? Like, how does a, an entire people stand along as something so horrific like that is pronounced as an edict throughout the land? How, how do they just stand idly by? But, but if you study history, you know this is not the first time it happens. And it's a question that you have to keep asking yourself. Like, it's the same question you'll ask, how did this happen in the southern states in America? Right? How was slavery permitted and, and how was it accompanied by this Supreme Court edict and, and the whole land went along with it? And you, you, you're left asking, and where were the Christians? And, and why, why did it seem like a good idea? And, and why didn't it click for so long that this is horrific? Or, or later in history, it's the same question you ask about Nazi Germany. How could one man have duped an entire nation? I mean, that has to be a lie from the pit of hell to be able to dupe an entire people into thinking that this is right and good and permissible, that this is the, the good solution, Hitler's final solution. I mean, you ask this question over and over again. How, how could a, a people have stood there and, and allowed it? And, and where again was the church? There's this one Christian pastor from Germany at that time called Martin Niemöller. He was arrested for his anti-Nazi work. He said this, Christianity in Germany bears a greater responsibility before God than the National Socialists, the SS, and the Gestapo. Hear that again. He said, Christianity in America, in Germany, bears a greater responsibility before God than the National Socialists, the SS, and the Gestapo. What he's saying is, how could the Christian church have stood by while Germany was performing this genocide and done nothing? And it's almost like the question is, how can a people who have experienced in their own souls what it means to be set free from slavery and rescued from death, not be a people who work for setting people free from slavery and rescuing people from death. 
Do you see that? I mean, how could a people who that kind of work has happened in their soul not be moved to be people who speak out and stand against slavery and speak out and stand against death? And you're left asking this question throughout history. How could that have happened? And where was the church? And why did they get duped into thinking that was right? And I think that these are going to be the exact questions that future generations ask about us. That future generations will sit and ask, how could 50 million American citizens have been killed before they took their first breath and they thought that that was right? And where was the church? And where were all these people who said that they had been set free from slavery and rescued from death in the face of all of that? And why would they have imagined that it was fine just to say I'm anti-abortion and have nothing else to do with it? I mean, what would it be like to have a church a few blocks away from Auschwitz and they gather every week for worship? What would it be like to have a church four miles away from the nearest abortion center and, and to have nothing but a posture within our own hearts that we would say this is wrong? And, and here's my question. Do you know that there are more slaves today than at any point in human history? There's more slaves caught up in human trafficking and all the rest than at any point in human history. And there is today more slaughter of babies than at any point in human history. We are so sophisticated and advanced and modern and educated, and we're so much more superior than those cultures that came before us. And yet with all our education and all our learning and all our technology, how is it possible that there are more slaves today than at any point and more slaughter of babies than at any point in human history? How, how is it that 50 million babies are aborted and murdered and slaughtered? Now, he, here's what I want you to hear. I know what I just said. I know that I just equated abortion with murder. And I know that there would be a great reason for some of us to push back. Some of you would want to push back. And I want you to hear me out. And I want to engage you for a moment. Some of you would want to say to me, listen, you are... You're cloaking this whole thing in this emotional language. You're using words like murder to tug at our heartstrings when the reality is that what's in the womb is not a human being. One of the pushbacks that, that you might give, that our city might give, is life begins at the birth, and what is in the womb is not a human being. That is such a common stance and argument that, that now we don't even know what to call the thing in the womb. I read this week on Philadelphia's Women's Center. It's the first outpatient abortion center in our state, and it's right in our city. On their website, they describe the procedures for abortion. There's basically two ways that you can do it. You can have non-surgical abortion through a pill, and you can have surgical abortion. In describing abortion by the pill, this is how they describe it. That after taking the pills in step one, the pregnancy will detach from the uterus. Did you hear that? The pregnancy will detach from the uterus. I looked up pregnancy because I've never heard it used that way. Pregnancy, at least as the dictionary would define it, is the state of being pregnant. 
but it's never used as the noun for what is in the womb. But, but we've got to be clever in how we say what we say. Or, or then it'll say in stage two of taking these pills, these pills will then dissolve inside the patient, which will cause the uterus to contract and the patient to bleed in order to expel all the pregnancy tissue from the uterus. So now what do we have to call it? That you take these pills so that the pregnancy tissue can be expelled from the uterus. And many women will pass the pregnancy within about four hours. So here's my question. What is it that will detach from the uterus wall? And what is it that will be expelled and passed from the uterus? What's interesting to me about our passage in Exodus 1 is Pharaoh will do the one thing that Planned Parenthood and abortion centers won't do. He'll name what comes out of the womb sons and daughters. He doesn't care, but at least he'll name them sons and daughters. If you remember in the text, in the original Hebrew, it's interesting. It doesn't just say, if it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let him live. He says, if it's a son, because at least he is able to recognize that what comes out of the womb is, is not pregnancy tissue. These are sons. These are daughters. And, and that is what is being killed. Now, for those of us who believe the Bible and the scriptures and hold them to be true, the scriptures are crystal clear for us in where life begins. The Bible tells us that God sees the human being and knows the human being and forms the human being even in its unborn state. Hear Psalm 139. For you form me in my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance when as yet there was none of them. So you tell me if God looks into life in the womb. Because at least Psalm 139 is going to say he doesn't just look into life in the womb. He's the one who forms it and knits it and knows it. And even when it's unformed substance, God is the one putting this baby together. Jeremiah 1, hear these words. God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, maybe not all of us are called to be a prophet like Jeremiah, but at least for this man, God is saying, I knew you before you were born. And I called you and had plans for you before you came from the womb. And again, maybe not all of us are called to prophetic ministry like Jeremiah was, but I would imagine that the text concludes for us, God knows the life that grows in the womb, and has thoughts towards it and plans for him or her. The scriptures speak of children even within the womb with morality and with personhood. Right? So David will say in Psalm 51, Behold, in iniquity did my mother bring me forth, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So he attaches even morality to the unborn child. Luke 1, you have this scene where Mary is coming to meet with Elizabeth. And, and it says the child within her leapt for joy. Again, is that a special circumstance? Absolutely. But does the scriptures assign to this unborn baby personhood and even emotion? It does. 
The scriptures will use the same word to describe what is in the womb and what's out of the womb. And he'll call them both baby and both child. I want you to hear that the scriptures see the killing of an unborn child as a capital offense. In Exodus 21, and we'll get there throughout this series, it'll say this. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her child or her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined. And the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. The scene is in Exodus 21, you've got these two men that are fighting. And if a pregnant woman goes to maybe stop her husband and the one injures her and the child dies within her womb or comes out and dies... The scriptures say, you shall pay for life. Eye for eye and foot for foot and hand for hand and wound for wound and stripe for stripe. If you've taken life, life will be taken from you. The scriptures are clear. So maybe you go, all right, that's your scriptures though. I'm not interested in your book. This is a conversation that has to do more with science than it does religion or philosophy. I am not a scientist. I am a Christian pastor. I get my bent. But even the scientific community, I mean, even the scientific community would concede that at conception, you've got 23 chromosomes from the mother and 23 chromosomes from the father that come together. And these 46 chromosomes do not form a rat or a whale or a mouse. They are the genetic coding for a human being. In fact, scientific technology has given us a view and a window into the womb so that now we know that at two weeks there is a discernible heartbeat that the blood that circulates within a two-week-old baby is not borrowed from her mother but is produced within the baby itself by six weeks, we have fingers and brain waves and movements. By eight weeks, ultrasound images show us of babies sucking their thumb, recoiling from pricking, responding to sound. All their organs are present. Their brain is functioning. Their heart is pumping. Their organs are working. They have unique fingerprints. And yet, by and large, all the abortions that are performed happen well past that date. All right, so some would say, look, the issue is not what is in the womb. That's a human being. The issue is a question of rights, right? What about the rights of a, a, a woman to choose? That's at the heart of this whole conversation, right? Some of us would say, I find abortion wrong, but I would never impose that belief on someone else, right? Because who are you to impose your decision onto the life of another, and to me, the great irony, and I say this with humility, the irony of that is, isn't that exactly what abortion is? Isn't it the imposition of a decision on the life of another? Where is in the conversation the child's right not to die? And we all know that while we are granted rights, all those rights have limits. And that's good and right. right? I can swing my hands as long as I want. But that has to stop when it comes close to your nose, right? My, my rights are forced to stop in view of the greater rights of your life, 
and your health and your well-being. I have a right to scream at the top of my lungs, but I am not allowed to scream fire in a movie theater because my rights are limited by the rights of another. The right to life trumps the right to choose. Are we saying this, and I need you to hear me, are we saying this because we are opposed to women? You have to hear me. No. Because if there have been 50 million abortions, 25 million of those were women. I mean, how does the rights of women get helped by murdering 25 million women? And, and let me show you for a second an example of how this whole thing gets so difficult to, to sustain and hold. For example, in India and China, we know that those are two prominent nations that practice what's called sex screening abortion. As it has become easier to determine the gender of the baby, and as the availability of abortion has grown, it has now become easier to, to select which child you want. And because of sexism that's deeply ingrained in those cultures, the preference is for a male child and not a female child. And so, you have now begun to see this incredible increase in abortion just for girls. It's like hints of the Pharaoh's story are all throughout this world. He chose one gender, our day chooses another. I'll give you one example, just from the state of Maharashtra in India. Here's, here's what one statistic showed. In one hospital in that state from June 17, 1976 to June 1977, 700 individuals sought prenatal sex determination. Of these fetuses, 250 were determined to be male and 450 were female. While all the male fetuses were kept to term, 430 of the 450 female fetuses were aborted. 430 out of the 450 were aborted. Now, laws have been passed in India and China to restrict sex selection abortions, but the practice continues as sex determination becomes easier and easier with technology and the availability of abortion. And here's the irony. Pro-choice feminists cannot speak out against sex selection abortion because to do so would mean that they have to identify that mass of tissue as a little girl. And because they can't, by fighting for the rights of women, they are allowing the selected slaughter of millions of women around the world, and they're in this difficult position of knowing what to say. How can you speak out against a ball of tissue because you can't identify it as a girl? And so in upholding the rights of women, we end up destroying the rights of women. In fighting against sexism, we can't protect nations filled with people who are practicing abortion selectively through sexism. Right? There's, there's hints of the Pharaoh's story all throughout this, this modern day equivalent. Right? There's, there's this idea of gender. There's also the idea of race. If you remember the Pharaoh's story, he selectively picks out a people. And, and I want you to hear that abortion has racial implications as well. Do you know that 78% of Planned Parenthood clinics have now moved out of the suburbs and are now in inner cities and urban centers? 
and they are now servicing a majority of poor minority folks. And so that now leaders within the African-American community have noticed that out of these abortions, 13 million of them are black Americans. Here's what one of these leaders said. Since the number of current living blacks in the U.S. is 31 million, the missing 13 million rep represents an enormous loss for without abortion, America's black community would now number 44 million persons. It would be over 35% larger than it presently is. Abortion has swept through the black community, cutting down every fourth member. The, the statistics, the experts say that the black community would be 35% larger than it currently is. But it's been decimated by abortion. Experts tell us that if these trends continue by 2038, the black vote will basically be insignificant in America. I mean, there's hints of Pharaoh's story all throughout this thing. Do we believe in rights? Absolutely. Absolutely. I want you to hear that. The scriptures tell us in Genesis, the continuation of the Exodus story or, or the, the prologue to it. The scriptures tell us man was created in the image and likeness of God. And in Genesis 9, God will say, so no one is to take the life of a man. Because if you do, you are attacking God in whose image and likeness man has been made. And so we believe in rights for every human being, born and unborn. But here's the thing. If you don't base human rights in the fact that we were made in the image and likeness of God, you'll have to find it in something. Does that make sense? I mean, if you believe in Darwinian evolution, what separates your rights from that of the lesser organisms? What makes your rights different than that of the rat or the mouse or the whale? And so you have to come up with something. If it's not that we were made in the image and likeness of God, then there, you've got to find some category that separates us from the other animals. And so one popular thought is capacities. So if you go to upper levels of academics and philosophy, they have put forth that what separates us from the other organisms is our capacities. And that is why we have certain inalienable rights and our rights need to be protected. And how they define capacity is the, the right to make decisions, the right to choose, the, right to, the, the capacity to reason, the capacity of self-consciousness, to make moral choices, to know right from wrong. So hear the argument. And because we have the ability to reason, the capacity to make choices, the capacity for preferences, we are moral agents whose rights should be protected. And so the line of thinking would go, abortion is therefore legal and permissible and morally okay because human beings are defined in their terms of rights as those who have capacity. And since the life in the womb does not have these capacities, it's morally permissible. And now I want you to hear secular, not within the church, secular thinkers have destroyed that whole line of thinking because they notice the problem. Because the problem is if what's in the womb does not have capacity and cannot be given rights, my five-week-old son doesn't have capacities either. He doesn't have the ability to reason or distinguish right from wrong or morality he, he's not viable. He can't survive on his own. He's completely dependent, and he has no capacities. Nor do, nor do the severely mentally handicapped. Nor do the senile old. 
And so not even from within the church, secular writers, New York Times editors have cut apart this whole thinking. Because what it does is it, it confines and closes in who's protected, doesn't enlarge the circle. Tim Keller, this one pastor says, if you don't believe in the image of God, if you only believe in capacities or some other trumped up approach to why we believe in human rights, the circle will continually contract. It will get smaller and smaller and fewer and fewer people will be protected. That's the inevitable logical conclusion. We could say more. Some of you will ask, what about cases of rape and the health of a mother? You need to know that the laws are not illegal in those cases. But those cases are, by and large, the vast minority. I mean, single-digit percentages, whereas the majority are on-demand abortions. So here's the question. What do we do? What's a, a biblical response? I want you to hear verses 17 to 21 from our text. Here's what it says. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. You think through this for a second, because it's no small thing. The Pharaoh is the highest authority in the entire land. What he says is law. What he says is done. If he says live, you live. If he says die, you die. He gives a command to these two Hebrew women, these midwives. And, and if they are to defy his command, what does that mean? They're done. They're dead. Do they have great reason to fear his power? I mean, who would want to cross this man? Wouldn't you be afraid to disobey his command? Wouldn't you be afraid to do with children exactly the opposite of what he told you to do? And the text tells us, but though they feared Pharaoh, they had a greater fear for God. You, you need to hear that because the answer to the fear of man is a greater fear of God. And that's not just in this particular issue. It's in all your lives. When you find yourself afraid of what men will think and what men will say and what men will do, you need to replace that with a greater fear of God. And a greater fear of God has them more afraid to disobey him than to disobey Pharaoh. More afraid of taking life than having their lives taken. More afraid to do with children exactly the opposite as God has said than as what Pharaoh has said. And from the beginning, what you see in this text is that God-fearing people have always stood for the helpless, the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized. Hear that again. God-fearing people, people who have a fear of God, have always stood with and stood for, even at great cost to their own lives, the poor, the oppressed, the marginalized, the weak, the helpless, the defenseless. See, what, what you see in this passage is God sort of subverts everything and flips everything on his head. What, what you find in the scriptures is God always seems to use those who are on the outside, not those who are on the inside. He, he uses the weak and the powerless and the oppressed and works with them and for them rather than working with and for the powers that be. 
In this passage, you have Pharaoh sitting on the throne. And yet, who does God use? If you think about it, Pharaoh's name is never mentioned in the entire book. And you've got two Hebrew midwives, and their names, Shipra and Pua, are recorded for millennia. So that thousands and thousands and thousands of years later, we know their story and their names, and nobody knows the name of this Pharaoh. You think that's a coincidence? Or did the writer put that in so that you see God's inverting the whole thing? We don't even know the name of the Pharaoh, but we know Shipra's name and Pua's name. And who does God use? He uses women, not men. Right? So in that culture, completely subverts. And who does he use? Cultural historians tell us that midwives were likely barren women. In fact, the text gives us a clue because after they do what's right, the text tells us God blessed them with families. So they're not just women. They're likely the least of the women. Because if you were barren in that day, that meant that you were the ones who weren't blessed. You, you were not just lesser than men. You were lesser than the normal woman. And throughout chapters 1 and 2, who does he use? He uses a woman, Moses' mother. He uses a little girl, Moses' sister. He uses Pharaoh's daughter. And now who's Pharaoh's daughter? She is an Egyptian, not Hebrew, so not the right race. She's not Hebrew, not right religion. She's ethnically, socially, culturally, in every way. All the women in chapters 1 and 2 are completely the opposite of who God should use. Ethnically wrong, culturally wrong, religiously wrong, racially wrong, socially wrong. And God loves to work with the outsiders, even to defeat the insiders. So that text does something for us. For, for one, if you have felt like you were an outsider, you are particularly the kind of people that God loves to work with and for. If your whole life you have been told or felt like you're a nobody, you're particularly the kind of people that God loves to work with and for. But what that also does is if your heart is going to be like God's, then it means you're going to work for the outside, not the inside and the poor, and the weak, and the helpless, and the defense, and the marginalized. If you're going to pattern your heart after God's, it means his heart is there, and your heart needs to catch up. And today I would say one application of that is there is perhaps no more helpless, defenseless, weak people than unborn children. And what would it be but for us to stand with and for them as God has stood with and for us? Right? The gospel says God came to you in your weakness, in your poverty, in your helplessness, in your defenselessness, and God saved you and rescued you. And therefore, God moves you to do the same. And that's what the scriptures call through all throughout. Let me read you a verse from James. James 1.27 says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James is going to tell his church, the people that come to his congregation, you want to know what good religion is? Good religion is not gathering week after week, making sure your soul is clean so that you get to heaven. Good religion is coming together, knowing who God is and knowing who you are and caring for the ones that God has cared for, even as God has cared for you. James's whole concern throughout his book is a faith that isn't at work is a faith that doesn't work. And, and if we're going to be about true religion, the scriptures would say, then where are you standing with the afflicted? 
Proverbs 24, I'll read you one more verse. It says, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we didn't know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay each man according to his work? Proverbs is saying, if someone is stumbling to death, if someone is being taken to the slaughter, you are to work against it. And if you cry out, I didn't know anything. I didn't know better. I didn't know how. God says, I perceive the heart and I'll repay each person according to their work. Let me end this whole thing by saying this. What this text does, Exodus 1, 15 to 22, is begin to push us to Jesus. And here's why. Pharaoh gives this edict. And in chapter 2, next week, we're about to find there's this one boy that escapes the edict. And that boy grows up to be the man Moses. And that boy who becomes the man Moses becomes the deliverer of God's people. And all of that is shadowing and foreshadowing you too, the deliverer of God's people who would grow up and be Jesus. But here's the great difference between Moses and Jesus. Moses sets the oppressed people free at the expense of the oppressor. But Jesus sets both the oppressor and the oppressed free. Right? Moses, at the expense of the wicked, saves the innocent. Jesus, at his own expense, the expense of his own life, saves both the innocent and the wicked. Jesus is a deliverer who not only works for those who are aborted, but he works for those who commit abortions. I want you to hear that at Seven Mile Road. Because as we speak through this whole thing, grace and truth... Because Jesus would say to any of you who have had an abortion, Jesus would say to any of you who have pressured a girl into an abortion, Jesus would say to any of you who have been affected by abortion, that he stands not just with the victims, but he stands with the wicked. He delivers us not only who have been sinned against, but us who have sinned. If the law said, Exodus 21, that if you take life, you will pay hand for hand, foot for foot, stripe for stripe, wound for wound. Do you know what Jesus says? Jesus says to a culture like ours who permits abortion or silently does nothing about abortion or we who have committed abortion, Jesus says, you know what? The law says this and I will take it for you. Your hands have blood on them. You can nail my hands to the cross and let them bleed for you. Your feet have walked to those places. You can nail my feet. Your wounds, my wounds. Those stripes you have caused, they'll be my stripes. I mean, he takes the law and says, I'm not abolishing the law. I'll let the law fall on me. My hands, my feet, my wounds, my stripes. Jesus stands with all. I mean, some of us... I would imagine even in a church like ours, you, you might even have the temptation for self-righteousness to creep into your heart and go, at least I've never done that. I may have sinned. I've never done that. Right. You haven't murdered a baby. You murdered Jesus. None of us have clean hands. Every single one of us comes into the room with blood on our hands. Everyone. And to everyone, Jesus says, my wounds for yours, my stripes for yours, my hands for yours, my feet for yours. The gospel is the good news that he now delivers us 
who have sinned and who have been sinned against. As we finish today, I, I want you to see that all that we're trying to talk through is not an issue. It's not a platform. It's not a, a checkbox on some political speech. This is flesh and blood. I'm going to invite Nate to come and give you a two seconds of his testimony, of his story, so that you can attach some flesh to all that we've said, and then I'll pray for us. So I'm going to invite Nate. So for those of you who I have not met, you know me as, or I have met, excuse me, you know me as Nate, but sometime around 1983 when I was born, my birth name was David Lee, and that's because I was adopted by my current parents as, as I know them now. And I was adopted because my Korean mother, who those of you who don't know Korean culture very well, sometimes it can be a very shame-based culture. So my Korean mother, when she became pregnant with me, whether I was inconvenient or she was shamed into doing it, she had decided that abortion would be the best route for her and for my dad. And I don't know the details, I don't know exactly how it went about, but I know that she decided not to do it. But more than that, when Ajay asked me to talk about this, I thought, going to church where I do, how does the gospel fit into that situation for me? And so I look at it and I say, first of all, I was delivered without any merit of my own, without any begging or any accomplishment God saw fit to visit me in the womb and spare me from death and to pull me out of that situation so that I could live the life that I do. And second, I found that when I looked at everything that I had been able to experience from then until this point, it was a gift. My wife, my family, the very breath that I breathe every day, it is a gift from God that I did not deserve, but he has chosen to give me. And then I also look at how could the gospel be a part of my situation going forward, and I think of maybe one day I'll be able to meet my mother. Maybe out there there is a woman who is feeling guilt, who's feeling despair and sadness at having lost her son, maybe not permanently, but he is out there and he does not, she does not know him. And she, he, he is not able to be a part of her life. Maybe I can see her one day, look her in the, in the eye and tell her that I love her and that God loves her and that she is forgiven. And lastly, uh, this last weekend, Ajay asked me to talk about this. An example for me came home that is summarizing everything he has been saying for these past weeks. Slavery, abortion, death. It was not long ago that I was standing on the west coast of Africa, and I was standing in a slave house, a slave transit hub. And I saw the segregation of the rooms, by male and female, I saw one door that said, Le Fant. For those of you non-French speaking people out there, that is children. Because that is where they would stick the children to either be killed or shipped. And I saw the feeding room where they would force feed the men so that they could reach the 60 kilos to make them prime sellers at market. And I saw the ship that held 330 to 360 people on average and left three times a day for hundreds of years to Pierre and Brazil and the Dominican Republic. And I saw the door of no return where you walked out and you entered the ramp to enter your ship to America to where you'd be thrown in the ocean if you tried to escape or else you would leave your country forever. All that to say, I was at a conference this past weekend of black pastors. 
who were talking about how could we bring the gospel back to Africa. And so it, it occurred to me as Ajay brought this topic up that even under the auspices of abortion that I was able to survive and even under the evils of slavery in Africa that all of these men and women had been able to make it here so that they could go back despite the most perilous depths of the evil of man, you cannot stop God's will and his love and his message.